Well, church family, we've arrived in Ezra chapter 3. And this chapter brings up the very important topic of worship. And it's important for us because we were created to worship. It's what the Westminster Catechism teaches us. that The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we know that's why we were created, because of where history is heading. One day, we will join all the faithful saints in heaven. And when we do that, we will proclaim as a multitude for all eternity the praise of our God. We'll sing hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. We will we'll rejoice, we'll exult and give him glory forever and ever and ever. That's what Revelation 19 teaches us. We were created for worship and we are moving toward an eternity that will be filled with the worship of our God. And how could it be any other way, friends? When we've encountered the God of the Bible in this way, who has so graciously revealed himself to us, who's acted so mercifully toward us in Christ, who's shown us his incredible love for us, how could we not be moved? How could we not praise him? How could we not be led to a place of worship? The people of God who he gives his name freely to, must be a worshiping people. We can't be tied to him and the revelation he's given to us and not be a people of praise. That wouldn't be doing him justice. And as we move here now into Ezra 3, we see the people of God becoming this worshiping people once again. They've been exiled because they stopped worshiping him or started worshiping false gods. And as a part of this glorious return, they're now returning to their God-given responsibility as the people of God, the work of worship. And as we read about their return this morning to being a, a people who honor the Lord in worship, it provides us with an opportunity to consider our own practices in worship and consider whether or not the offerings we offer to the Lord in our worship as a people of God are truly pleasing to him. If we're concerned about that, or if in reality, at the end of the day, we're more concerned about what pleases us. This moment today will allow us to make sure that we haven't lost the true and right focus of worship. And that is the Lord, our God. You see, it is the height of human sinfulness to take the worship that is due him and make it about ourselves. And we know it's possible We see echoes of this all around us where people give gifts to someone else as an expression of honor to them, but in reality, the gift's more about themselves. Let me give you one example. Some years ago, I got Jordan tickets to go see Keith Urban in concert. I'm a big fan of Keith Urban, puts on a great show, and I thought it would be a fun thing for us to go and experience that together, and it was. We had a great time. What I also learned later was that it probably wasn't the thing that Jordan would have desired to do for her birthday. It was a great event, but the gift was really more about my enjoyment than her enjoyment. And so I had to repent of that and commit to be better in the future as a husband. But how often do we do that with the Lord? How often do we offer him what is really good for us rather than consider what he wants? That's not God-honoring worship. That's idolatry. It's, it's the worship of ourselves. And it will ultimately lead us to exile rather than restoration and fellowship with him. 
So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to sit before the scripture and let the Lord shape us into the kind of people who truly honor him in their worship, who truly are considering what he wants, what he desires, and fellowship with him, enjoy him, and declare praise to him as we prepare for the eternity of worship that awaits us. Let's read Ezra 3 together and consider how this passage helps us prepare to be a worshiping people. Here's what the word of God says. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the great grant that they had been given from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the houses or the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of their father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people of God could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. As our passage begins, the author notes for us that some time has passed since the first two chapters and the seventh month of the Jewish calendar has now begun. And it's an important note for us to consider because the seventh month was an important month in the ritual worship of Israel. The first day of the seventh month was a day of solemn rest, proclaimed with the blast of trumpets. The tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. And the fifteenth day of the seventh month began the week-long festival of booths. And we see all of that laid out in Leviticus 23. So much of Israel's worship was tied to this month. And as it approaches, the people of God feel compelled once again 
to declare the faithfulness of God through these God-given rituals. And it's an incredibly moving scene. The people who had experienced the hard discipline of their heavenly father return, and they find him waiting with open arms, ready to receive their worship. And they begin their practice of worship by preparing the place for worship. We see this in verse 2. The priests, under the leadership of Jeshua and Zerubbabel, begin rebuilding the altar of God. Then later, after some more time has passed in verse 10, they begin laying the foundation for the temple. And it's striking that these preparations in many ways mirror the first preparations of the temple under the time of Solomon. And these two elements in worship are brought to our attention on purpose. The altar and the temple are central figures of Israel's worship. They play a central role in their worship because they allowed the people of God to draw near to the Lord. See, one of the key aspects of our worship, the goals of our worship, is meeting with God, a fellowshipping with Him. We want to know Him. We want to experience Him. We want to enjoy Him. But because of our sin and the separation that sin has caused, we're limited. People of God then were limited. And they had to abide by the specific outlines God had given for them to encounter Him in worship. God said they had to meet Him in specific ways. The altar reminds the people that in order to experience the presence of God, in order to to be his people and have fellowship with him, their sin had to be accounted for. And God ordained that it would be accounted for through the shedding of innocent blood. Someone, something, had to atone for the sins of the people. Somehow the people of God had to be cleansed to be able to stand before a holy and righteous God. And so as the people gather... They offer sacrifices upon the altar in order to meet with him. And then the temple. The temple was ordained by God to be the meeting place between God's people and himself. He would dwell there and they could come to him. But even as they came to him in the temple, there was a limit to how much they could encounter him. His presence was veiled, literally veiled. And even with these sacrifices... Sin limited God's interaction with his people. It wasn't like the Garden of Eden, but this was the best the people of God had. And so they obeyed the Lord and they came to the place where he established their meeting. And it's important to note that their restoration would not be complete until the temple itself was complete, because only then would God come and truly dwell among them once again. So they prepared the place for worship. And then after preparing the place for worship, the people begin to engage in the practice of worship, God honoring worship. And there are so many elements in their worship that we see here in this chapter covering the span of months that I think is really important for us to take note of. Four things, in fact, four elements of their worship that I think are particularly important for us. Firstly, the people gather together. One of the practices of worship for them was gathering corporately to praise the Lord. They did not come to this place of meeting individually. They came as a group. They came as a people. They came as one, verse 1 says in chapter 3. You see, God has established for himself a people, not individuals, a people. 
And these people, this people are called to worship God together, to gather as one in order to declare the glory of God. Because there's something about the corporate gathering of God's people and that corporate public declaration that enhances the declaration of God's glory. And when they gather, they give. It's the second thing that we see. They give of their resources as an expression of of thanksgiving and as a request for his continued provision. The first part of this chapter is happening during the Feast of Booths. So the author says in verse 4, And this is when the people of God remembered God's provision for them in the wilderness. He guided them. He fed them. He protected them on the other side of the Egyptian exodus. And these offerings while some of them also tied to their atonement, were meant to remind God's people where their provision, where their sustenance actually comes from. All of these offerings were meant to remind God's people of their continued need for him. The people of God will give sacrificially when they trust God to give abundantly. And this practice in worship reminds them of why God is worthy to be worshipped in the first place. He has provided, and he will continue to provide for his people so long as they remain faithful to him. And the ritual practice in giving is accompanied by worship and song. It's the third element of their worship we see. Verses 10 through 11, the people of God, in response to the foundation of this temple being built later in the story of chapter 3, have a response a musical response. They they play instruments, trumpets, and cymbals, and then they sing songs. It's a reminder for us that worship is meant to be expressed. One of the, the great gifts God has given to us is to be able to express our, our joy, our longing, to express the goodness and worth of God in song. And God's people here are clearly moved when they see the temple being re-established to sing songs of praise to their God. And the, the fourth element that we see is that all of this worship happening over the span of months here is directed by the very word of God itself. Verse two, the Bible tells us that the people of God in offering these sacrifices were doing exactly what the written law of God told them to do. Later in verse 11, when they see the temple being established The priests of God declare the praise of God just as David did in 1 Chronicles 16, 34-35. They say of God what God has called them to say about him. And they do for God what God has asked them to do clearly in his word. God is worthy of our worship. And he's so good to us that he's directed us in his word to know how to worship in a way that pleases him. So our worship, like their worship, must be word-driven. So the the practice of God's people here, the the elements of their worship could be described with these four words. It was corporate, it was sacrificial, it was word-directive, and it was responsive. The final thing that we learn from the people of God's example here in Ezra 3 about their worship that their practice was meaningful. All these things that they did, it was meaningful because they finally remembered the right focus in their worship. They kept the right focus in their worship. 
the place and the practice are only worthwhile whenever it's directed to the right place. They're not worshiping here, the people of God, a multitude of gods. They're not worshiping their God alongside the other pagan gods of the nations surrounding them in a way that got them into trouble earlier in the history of Israel. They're not worshiping themselves or giving God what they want instead of what he wants. There's, there's one audience, clearly one audience in, in mind as the people of God gather to, to worship, and that's the one true God of Israel. He has led them back to the land of promise, just as he said he would. He has sovereignly planned this glorious return, and he has proven himself faithful to his promises yet again. So the people of God worship him. Now, we should note that the worship is complicated. There are a number of emotions, a number of responses here to the the focus upon God and his work. On one hand, it's celebratory as the people of God rejoice in the work that God has done on their behalf. But on the other hand, it's also somber. There's an element of lamenting here that we see in verses 12 to 14 because the people are grieving over why God had to work in the first place and what they've lost in this season of discipline. And I think this characterizes actually true worship of God. This is what it looks like to truly worship God when he is at the center of your worship. It's it's mixed with both rejoicing and repenting of being grateful and being sorrowful, knowing what God has done and giving him thanks for that, rejoicing in it, but then also being broken over the fact that he had to do it in the first place. Being broken over what sin has cost us and ultimately what it cost him. So there's a balance here in how we worship. We should be celebratory, but there also should be seasons of lament. Because it's, what I think happens is that our, our worship of God is heightened. The way that we give glory to God is heightened when we remember why God had to do this work in the first place. And that leads to greater celebration in the life of God's people. So what a powerful example of God-honoring worship we have in this text. And the question now is how their worship should challenge us in our own worship. In our remaining time this morning, I want to just answer that question. How can we practice God-honoring worship today as God's covenant people? I want to take three lessons away from this text to help us evaluate our approach to worship to help us consider whether or not we are truly God-honoring in our worship. So three lessons. Firstly, our goal in worship should be to draw near to God. Again, that was the purpose of the places established by God for worship in the Old Testament, to be able to draw near to Him. And that's our same goal today. We want to fellowship with Him. We want to walk with Him. We want to enjoy Him. We want to encounter the Lord. And be changed by that encounter. And here's the good news for us, friends, on this side of Christ, as the people of the new covenant. There's no longer any need for an altar. And there's no longer any need for a temple. That's what Hebrews 10 teaches us. Christ has offered a once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. Giving all of us who are covered by his sacrifice a permanent forgiveness of sins. When he died, 
he tore the veil and the temple in two. And now we have complete access through him to God the Father. The same spirit that inhabited the temple of God now inhabits those of us who are in Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us. We are the living temples of God. And we can draw near to God right now in our home in worship. Because God has made us his home through Christ. What an incredible declaration for us to consider today. There's no longer any danger for us coming into the presence of God because of the work of Christ. And we can draw near to him in worship. The second lesson, though, our practice should be a response to God drawing near to us. We should desire to draw near to God, and then we should respond in worship to his drawing near to us. We desire to draw near to God in worship because we have seen how he has worked to draw near to us. The practice of honoring the Lord in worship for his faithful work on our behalf should be characterized by the same characteristics we see on display in the the worship of God. Yes, some of the practices may have changed, but the characteristics are certainly the same. Our worship should be corporate. It should be sacrificial. It should be word-directed, word-driven, and it should be responsive. Let's consider each one of those just for a moment. Our worship should be corporate. While it is true that you can encounter the Lord in your own home, and aren't you grateful for that, particularly on a day like today and this season of separation? Yes, we can encounter the Lord in our everyday life, but it's also important for us to understand that there's something unique that happens when God's people gather together for corporate worship. There's something about the design of this gathering in worship that further reveals the glory of God. It's a powerful statement when God's people come together, redeemed, pulled from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and declare the glory of Christ, declare their satisfaction in the Lord alone. And I hope that as we are prevented from gathering together right now, that you are feeling this longing. I'm hopeful that the Lord is stirring in your heart a love for the the gathering of God's people. And that on the other side of this time, when we are free to, to gather together again, you will choose it. You will choose to gather. You will reject the things that would take you away from that in the past because you've come to realize the value, not only for your own self, but value in the work of glorifying God that we have been called to. Our worship should be sacrificial, Our worship should be an offering that is meant to please the Lord more than ourselves. A declaration of his provision and worth and our ongoing trust in his provision for us. What we do as a people in corporate worship is not for us. It's for God. In fact, it's meant to challenge us in our selfishness as we sacrifice unto the Lord. And this is so important for us to remember because there are so many churches and there are so many practices among churches that cater to humanity that indirectly or directly suggest that we are the most important thing to consider when we gather together in worship and friends that could not be further from the example of the scripture. No, our our worship must be sacrificial We must give of ourselves in honor to the Lord. 
He should be the only focus for our worship when we gather. And finally, our worship should be word-directed, word-driven. We want to worship God in the way that he has prescribed. Ritually, remembering his faithfulness through acts like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then saying of God what he's already said of himself. We want to follow his direction through the inspired word because we want to glorify him in a way that pleases him. And finally, our worship should be responsive. As we've considered the goodness of God, as we've considered his faithfulness and his sovereignty, we should respond in singing. We should respond in shouting. We should respond in celebration and lament. And our worship should be so loud that people, even far away, hear it. As we see there in verse 13. And the final lesson that we learned today, that's been stated kind of throughout our talk today. We must be diligent, as the people of God learned on the other side of exile in their return, to make sure that God is the only focus in our worship. There are a lot of things that we can talk about when we gather together, but nothing is worthy of our time and that moment of worship except God himself. Our ultimate purpose in worship is to make much of God, to remember him, to celebrate his work, to grieve over the need of his work and the sacrifice that he was, that he chose to give on our behalf. And then to look forward to the day when the foretaste of fellowship we have enjoyed here will be made full and we will dwell with him again. Worship him for all of eternity as we were created to do. So friends, have you responded to God's provision in Jesus? Have you seen how he has come near to us so that we can draw near to him? The sacrifice he's provided, the provision he's given in Christ to let us come into his presence. If we have, why would we ever want to forsake that? Shouldn't we be a people who worship the Lord with every fiber of our being all the time? That's why we were created. And if you've not yet taken advantage of that sacrifice, if you've not stepped into the provision of Christ through repentance and belief and are still far off from the Lord, oh, would today be the day that you would see how he's drawn near to you and respond by drawing near to him through the work of Christ. And then friends, First Baptist Church of Irving, can we say that this describes our worship? That these elements are true of our worship? Do we long for and, and celebrate corporate worship? Are we sacrificial in our giving? Are we sacrificial in our offerings? Are we word-directed? And is our our musical worship, a response to what God has done. I hope these are true of our church. And I want to commit alongside you to making sure that they are more true of our church in the future. Every time we gather, friends, I want God to be our focus. I want to make much of him. I want to celebrate what he has done for us in Christ so that we can enjoy his presence. We can meet with him, fellowship with him, 
and long for the day when that fellowship will be complete. May we worship as we were created to and help others prepare for this ultimate purpose. God is glorious. And if we are in Christ, we will enjoy him forever. Friends, that's good news. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this reminder of what it is that we're doing here today. We thank you that through Christ, you've made a way to meet with us exactly right where we are. But Father, we also rejoice in the coming day when we will be able to implement these things again. We want to be a worshiping people. We want to be a a sight for people to look at and see what is coming, what has been prepared for them. We want to look like Revelation 19 as your people, faithfully worshiping you as we were created to. Would you help us be that kind of people? Would you help us be a people who honor you with everything that we do? That is a desire of our hearts. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.